0: Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarneheim, futurist and author. In episode 120 of the podcast, the topic is regenerative medicine. Our guest is Giuseppe Perale, professor at USI and founder at IBI. In this conversation, we talk about regenerative medicine's path from scientific discipline to a commercial field. We touch on the true meaning of regenerative, which means repair to heal, translational medicine, tissue engineering, stem cells, biofabrication, longevity, the health span lifespan debate, and the debacle around the safety and innovation in medical devices. The host of this podcast, uh, Trond Arne Unheim, PhD, is the author of Health Tech, Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset, published by Rutledge in 2021. Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, published by Kogan Page in 2021. Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, and Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure both published by Atmosphere Press in 2020. Leadership from Below How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace by Lulu Press in 2008. For an overview, go to Tron's Books at slash books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to slash sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book him for keynote speeches, please go to futurized.org slash store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thank you so much. Let's begin. Giuseppe, how are you? I'm fine. And you? See I'm you doing too. great. I'm doing great. What, what would you prefer uh, people to, to call you? I know Giuseppe is, uh, is a formal name in, in Italian. Yes, exactly. But I think that only my mother uses it. And she has to complain against me.
1: (laughs) So (laughs) also my LinkedIn profile is with Beppe, which is um, you know a nickname. Yeah. So that's. So you're fine fine with me saying Beppe? Yes,
0: definitely. All right. Otherwise, I would say yes, (laughs) ma'am. Yeah, no. I wanted to cover this. We should have covered this beforehand. These are important things. Definitely. Anyway, we have very serious issues to discuss today. You you have a wonderful research field, and it's a, an exciting area that's uh, evolving really fast. But uh, let's maybe just dive into your background a little bit. You're you're um, not your super traditional academic. You have done a lot of innovation, and you're straddling. Um, Kind of Italy and Switzerland, and for for those people who are not in those regions, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting situation. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But you work at what's called the USI, the University of uh, Switzerland, the Italian University of Switzerland. No, so like, actually, a, yeah. the University of the Italian
1: speaking part of Switzerland.
0: I was going to get to that. Yeah, so this is something not everybody fully, you know, is is up to speed on. That there are all these languages uh, circulating in that part of the world, of course. So, um, but other than that, you're also uh, representing uh, Austria.
1: Yes, actually, yes. So, uh, it, <laughs> so, it, yeah. so it's a little bit on, on the complicated okay. side. Okay, we, we, can, we can switch language, if you prefer, from English to German to Italian. It's always a mess like this. But the, the funny uh, position is that Switzerland, as a general concept, has four national languages, four official national languages, and one added national language, which is English. The fourth one are German, French, Italian, and Romance. And these are the four traditional languages uh, here in Switzerland. And what is curious to say is that uh, there are jokes around, of course, the different corners of Switzerland according to which language they speak. Actually, the university where I'm professor here is the University of Southern Switzerland. That's the official name uh, in English, while in the Italian name, it sounds like University of the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. So it's a little bit of a funny story, but that's life. I'm also a permanent visiting professor at the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute in Vienna. It's a unit for traumatology and regenerative medicine. And for a long, long uh, list of reasons, I'm also an Austrian honorary consul for southern Switzerland, which gives me the, the status of the honorary diplomat. But it's you know just some stars and some ribbons around you know, my chest, but nothing more.
0: Yeah, well, stars and ribbons are important, but we'll 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 get to to the stars and the ribbons because I, I just wanted to cover this very interesting international context to to where you're based because this is a field also uh, that is of course an international research and innovation field and you've spent uh, you know you, you, some of your education was in Milan at the Politecnico and then I, I believe you, your postdoc was at Imperial College in, in London so you you've been circling Europe for a while yeah yeah.
1: And even more with respect to that, I did my master thesis in bioengineering and uh, um, I have a master degree in bioengineering with courses from the medical faculty, both from Milan. And then I took a PhD in industrial bioengineering, you know, with a specific field of applied physical chemistry in between Italy and Switzerland, then I moved a little bit to the Imperial as a postdoc, then I went back to Italy, then I was a little while at the Karolinska and at the Angstrom Laboratory in Uppsala in Sweden, and then I get back to Italy, and then finally I've decided to settle some almost nine years now here in Switzerland. So I've been traveling a little bit around, and as a general comment, we say that Switzerland is in the middle of Europe. So if you pin the European map in the middle, you get to Switzerland. Uh, We are not part of the European Union, of course, but yet we are in the middle of Europe. And beside what people can think or might have as, you know, in the general understanding, Switzerland is a really, really open liberal uh, society. Almost one-fourth of the population living in Switzerland is non-Swiss. And which is the very highest percentage around Europe, I guess, by far. So it's really a multinational, multicultural environment, you know, in the middle of the Alps in a very relaxed environment, really nice.
0: So it is really international, actually. Well, and and we'll get to your field in a second, but the, the last note is, of course, you have co-founded at least one startup that we'll talk about, and, uh, you know, this... Field of innovation, I guess, also straddles uh, you, you know borders. So it, it is, in fact, a multidisciplinary field we're going to talk about, and with with many different influences. But let's let's get into it, Pepe. So regenerative medicine. Can you uh, just for people who don't spend their daytime, you know, in that field, it is very easy to come across an article that talks about the future of medicine and you know how we're going to supposedly by tomorrow enter into a day and age where you know everything is reconstructable and you know any bodily damage can be can be undone by by medicine where have we been and where are we moving in this field like very very broadly before we get into some of the specific things that you've been innovating on. Yeah, happily. I mean, uh,
1: something I tell my students uh, quite often is that the concept of, you know, Mm -hmm. rebuilding our human body due to damages of, you know, accidents or whatever, at least starts back from the ancient Egyptians. There are evidences dating 4,000 years ago that they were struggling in reconstructing bone segments and they were pioneering into some kind of we can say reconstructive surgeries, if you can get, you know, I should talk like this, you will probably to get you into the more ancient Egyptian environment, but this is something really, we are talking about 4,000 years, people struggling around this concept. And we tend now to say, look, yes, really, tomorrow we're going to print 3D organs, we're going to replace, the, you know, the lack of donors, etc." Well, this is the trend of the regenerative medicine approach, is to somehow... Uh, make it real and actual, the new paradigm of medicine, which is leaving the repair approach in favor of a healing approach. It is true from a theoretical perspective, lots of words, you know, uh, liters of ink has been used to write down everything and more. But when you go and you look at what reality yet is, it's a really, really newborn field. Some people say yet pretty much immature, which is absolutely true at the same time is vast as an ocean and there are tons of possibility to exploit and new you know ways that needs to be taken in the, in the in, we say in the next decades so the time horizon we should discuss is decades it's not years and this takes well, time I- indeed
0: yeah, no. I I wanted to set that as a context because you know it's so easy when you have a, a podcast called Futurized and you talk about the future to be kind of labeled as you know we just have people on who are like s- speculating about you know these futures that uh, and, and it's easy to start exaggerating. But I, I I wanted to set that context because some of the things that we are talking about they almost sound too fantastic to be true, right? Some of the some of the true prospects of this field. Um, they relate to well first of all i guess they challenge what it means to be a human being in a fundamental sense and they touch upon ethics and they touch upon a lot of different things and biofabrication as fascinating uh, fascinating as it is um it also raises some specters of 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 manipulation and there are so many issues Uh, I, i guess my second question as we're getting into what you have focused on is what is the interest right now among students among you know the general public? is this starting to become a topic of uh, you know of concern in the media or is it still a very esoteric concept that that people don't really start to engage with?
1: No I think it's not yet it's no more something esoteric you know in in, in the wider sense of this adjective. I think it's something that is becoming of, Let me say almost daily interest because you know a lot of um, news are coming out in the field of not only regenerative medicine in general but also these applied technology that are needed behind you know uh, the shoulders of regenerative medicine, which is just let me say just a you know a big label but has a lot of concept behind. As you said in the beginning, is really a multidisciplinary field, and if we consider what we are looking at, we are trying to re. Uh, you know, to regenerate, which means to let the body heal itself and support in regeneration capacity. This could apply to potentially any district of the body, which means a burnt skin, uh, you know, a massively broken bone, eyes, retinas, eventually brain, spinal cord, whatever. So the potentiality is immense, yet it's so complex and so difficult that the stage where different researches are completely different. We have some easy tissues to approach or at least easier with respect to others. And I'm thinking about skin. I'm thinking about bones, for example, where you, know, you can do something relevant and where the advantages are now available to the, let me say, to the public, which means to the patients in general, and others where it's just fancy, long, long-term research. So under this huge umbrella of regenerative medicine, you have things that are already in the clinics, well-established, really working well and others which are really futurized and then we look on that direction I had 10 20 decades you know 10 20 years so talking one two decades at least. And in these you know, knowmaramanum different things what it is interesting is that students are attracted by this usually because of some of their personal experience. I used to have you know a, a master thesis student who was suffering from diabetes, and he was really, really focusing on, well, we should somehow regenerate, you know, longer islets and somehow find a solution to get us clear of these medicaments we have to take and all these controls for, you know, the um, sugar blood uh, level, et cetera. So this is something that I see, I would say, almost uh, daily, you know, with my students. On the other hand, you can read in the newspapers, you know, like on the news on the internet, popping out news ah the outbreak of a new 3d printing technology could allow soon to print entire hearts so we will no longer suffer from you know heart donors uh, lack or whatever this is you know really nice sounding uh, sentences but actually really really far from because you know the levels are different
0: topics complexity are tremendously different yet the trend well. is here no, I understand the trend is here. So, so, here's my question to you then, as a researcher and also, I guess, a practitioner uh, in you know in this field, how not only have you do research in this field, but how do you keep these distinct pieces, uh, you know, in your mind because there are some things, that are, that would be like, even when they're announced to you, they're completely new to you in the sense that they are from an aspect of the body or some perspective that you haven't looked at before, because how could you look at everything at all times? Others are, you know, obviously where you can start focusing down. I'm just wondering, how do you, um, how do you structure your work in a field where potentially from left field, someone could do an experiment and then the ramifications if that even is remotely true are, are enormous even for your own field because you know some people will start saying well you know like you said it's, the printing has evolved to this level and then others will say well here is you know a way that we're growing cells that has never been attempted before or we are able to reinvigorate t-cells or any number of cells uh, and they can do these amazing things i mean when you read reports that are quoted in media, you get this very sensationalist version of it. How do you who straddle in the middle of of the the real research, how do you actually discern what's remotely possible versus what seems really far-fetched? And it would be fantastic if it were true, but for you to even investigate if it is true, wouldn't that even just take you a couple of weeks just to Figure that out. So I guess, how do you navigate your own field in in, in this reality where it's like you outlined? It moves fast. There are a lot of people coming from this at different angles. They don't even belong to your research community, perhaps, but they suddenly publish something that you, you find is relevant to your field. Yeah, so, I mean, I have two different strategies. One, when you read
1: things on the news, they, you know, sounds incredibly cool, the future is tomorrow, whatever. Yeah. Then, then usually they quote a sentence on they reference, a publication, they say professor or whatever, Johns uh, or did something like that. Then I dig into the last publication of this gentleman or this lady and see what he or she has been doing recently. And then you look at the last papers, like you Google Scholar, his or her profile, and you see what we are talking about. Typically, you know, a journalist which is not a tech journalist, but is let me say a generalist journalist, picks up the news and then magnifies it or tells a story on top of it and needs clicks, you know, to make his day. Then you look at really what is written on the paper and then you will see what they are actually doing, what's their trend in the last five years, for example. Eventually you understand that more or less we all struggle with the same problems. It's a problem of understanding. So there is a basic need of research here. So there are tons of basic researchers you know, digging out and understanding the real functional mechanism of that part of the body. We believe that everything is known. It is absolutely not true. Not only when that part of the body is healthy, but when that part of the body is injured, they dig out and understand what's the causes of the injury, what are the effects of the injury, how can we tackle this injury. And when the basic science somehow is in place, then come the, as I say, intermediate pre-applied researchers and say, oh, okay, if this is the problem, we could look for some of these solutions. And they prospect a wide list of possible solutions to solve problems, to fix a tissue, to repair uh, you know, an organ. Some of these might be fancy, but are impossible to bring into clinics because they are too complex they are not sufficiently robust in terms of repeatability they are tremendously expensive for example or they use critical materials or critical solutions that are not compatible you know in terms of biomaterial application for example regulatory perspective is a nightmare on top of all these you know closing uh, pyramid of a funnel if you prefer come people like I am the applied guys they say look okay I've been reading a lot of papers where I understand what the problem. A lot of people been suggesting different approaches. Well I'm developing an applied approach which is based off some of those I've been reading, also some other inputs from totally different fields, but I'm trying to make it really applicable into clinics. What we say is to translate research from bench to bed, where the bench is the lab bench and the bed self-evidently, is the bed of the patient, you know. That part of transition is the very last mile where you have to be extremely practical, no fancy stuff, simple stuff, repeatable, reliable, and that eventually it has to work. So this means that the solution has to be simple. And if I consider what I do, I know a little bit of my two fields of activity and almost nothing of the others. But I know that from other fields I can get ideas, and one a simple example I was telling my students uh, really one or two months ago is that one recent idea we got was came coming out I would say very easily from a discussion I was having with one of my daughter and she's at um, mid grade school, and she said Ah look I've been reading something on one of these you know s- small uh, papers they get for kids uh, you know science focus or something like that. Uh, that this kind of animal has a specific ability to regenerate its own tail, which is different from just simply the lizards. But these, the scientists have discovered that there is a, they have a specific gene that works, and only these animal has this. And I said, ah, I'm cool, really? And I said, can you show me, please, what you've been reading? And she came up with this paper and said, ah, look. And at the end, there was a footnote saying, this uh, article was written based upon a paper that came out on nature, or whatever it was, then I dig that study and I find out that actually these gentlemen were looking at this animal for a totally different perspective, not a regenerative medicine perspective, a very genetic way to understand, you know, the roots of evolution. But all of a sudden in the paper there was just a clear sentence that you know turned the light on for me and said, Look, wait, this could be interesting as an approach for what we are doing. So you took advantage of these things and some of them pop out casually. Nothing to say, you know, by chance. Some others is just because you're studying, studying, reading, thinking, and understanding. But sometimes, you know, innovation pops out like this. So if I have to think of my field, this is the way it happens. I know tons of people developing new potentially materials for bone regeneration, at least two, three hundred new papers every year. How many of these
0: get into clinics? One. That's incredible. Tell us a little bit to make this very concrete. So you have a, bio, a co-founded a biomedical startup called IBI. Uh, IBI. Yeah, it's a Swiss company uh, working on specifically on smart bone. So you know you, you're very deep in, in, into bone, uh, you know regeneration. How did you? Identify that because, like you said, two hundred papers <laughs> and one gets into clinic. How's that going? And you know, it would seem to be a—it's a long process translating this kind of research. Is not, it's not you know two guys in a garage and then you know some venture capitalists and then boom, you have it in market and you're fixing people's bones. No, uh, it, some kind of it
1: was probably twenty years ago, but definitely it is not now. So, actually, um, it was me and the other founder. His name is Gianni Pertici. We were in London together. I was a postdoc at Imperial. He was a PhD student at the King's College. We have very complementary backgrounds. We've been knowing each other ever since years at that stage. And we said, look, you know, we're watching, actually, a football match in a pub, some good beer. Um, what are we going to do when this funny part of our life will end? And we will have to go back to the continent you know, and find a way to pay our salaries. And then he said, look, why don't we set up a startup in in the field of biomaterials? And at that time, regenerative medicine was not yet a mature concept. It was tissue engineering, engineering, living tissues. And he's um, a chemical engineer. And I said, look, why don't we do it? And we spent some days, you know, I should not say it, but our academic activity was not exactly 24-7 at that stage. So we had some free time in a nice city. And we started discussing what should we do. And we came out with the fact that uh, the bone tissue engineering had a lot of space for something new. But we definitely didn't want just to make some a new academic research. We wanted to be very precise, really concrete, and make a product that could become also business. So we said, let's start in it. And over the time, we have developed our own uh, bone graft, which we decided to call it Smart Bone. Whether this is a nice name or not, I cannot judge. But it's smart because it's easy the way it's manufactured and it's smart the way it is composed. And actually, it's one of the 100 papers coming out. And last year at our tissue engineering and regenerative medicine um, conference, we came out with a paper, and the title of the paper is One of Those Few Who Made It. With other colleagues, there were the few that are in our field have been bringing something successfully from the idea to the bench of the lab, to the preclinical study, to the clinical studies and then successfully into the market and this is a long long process and it's a nightmare it's called in our field the death valley because you know at every step you can have issues that are killing issues it takes time commitment understanding and of course also a lot of money every step has a lot of concerns and then you have to be absolutely sure what you're doing know your goal on the very long run and then target step by step in mid with regulatory ethics manufacturing everything it's in the middle every single step you make
0: yeah in Europe right now there's the MDR regulation right uh-huh. uh, which uh-huh. uh, is pretty complicated makes things uh, interesting-
1: uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: Uh, can we have another question, please? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well I we, mean, we, we, it's a nightmare. There are so many reg. so many regulatory regimes, right? And you you have to deal with Europe because you're in Europe. There is, uh, you know, there's I'm sure Swiss regulations, and then you know, if you want to go to the US, there's the FDA. Uh, you know, there's the FDA. Um, generally, I guess. How it, how do you have to approach those things? I mean. Y- I mean, they uh, could clearly throw a uh, a wrench into a, any ambition if you yeah. if you don't have a path there. Not, not only one, path. not only
1: one, you know, a bunch of them. They, I mean, the sense is, uh, I'm I'm extremely critical from a certain perspective. You know, uh, when you are in the states, you think with a U.S. mentality. You have the FDA; it's a state agency. They have, right. you know, clear rules, clear guidelines, clear timing, you have to follow to submit, and they have clear timing, they have to answer. It's something public. You can appeal, you have can discuss, they are open, you know, they are competent, and they're not afraid of what they do. In Europe, the biggest mistake was that Europe has somehow given a mandate to private companies, the so-called notified bodies, to be those, uh, you know, uh, granting CE certificates, which means the clearance to enter the European market for the medical devices. While this does not occur for the drugs, it does occur for the medical devices, which means that you pay a company that should be superpartis, but yet is a private business, that sh- will verify your technical files in your document upon an unclear normative reference that we have in Europe, and at a certain stage grant you a CE mark. There were heavy scandals that have been shaking the fundamentals of these systems, yet the European, instead of understanding that the norms were sufficient, they had to revise the system, they changed the reference directive and introduced this MDR, which is a regulation. The previous normative framework was ruled by the medical device directive, a very short, slim, and clear document written by technicians. You have to do this, 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 and that. Follow this, this, and that, and go ahead with it. They released, you know, those European bureaucrats start saying, ah, no, it was too easy. They you know, companies were trying to snake around. They're trying, you know, to find shortcuts, blah, blah, blah. We need a more complex structure to deal with more complex products. So they invented, from a legal perspective, the MDR, which is from 17 to more than 400 pages. It's legally written. So you have to interpret every single sentence. It's full of contradictory parts, contradictory articles. There are tons of explanatory documents coming out every month. And a lot of people from our field were clearly aggressive against this, and we are commenting it, saying it's a jungle. In the meanwhile, they reformed the Notified Body System. So they went from more than 80 to, I think, less than 30, which are full of load of work to do. And the result is that they are impeding, actually, practically, any new products to come in. And given that they are co-responsible co- with the legal manufacturer of the medical device, they tend to be extremely careful of what they ask you.
0: They follow checklists
1: checklist and tick boxes. Well, and
0: in, and you speak of it as if it's new, but I mean, this MDR regulation has been now in place since 2017. So that's, that's actually four, four years of, uh, and probably even before that. You know, it, was, it was. It
1: came into rule, uh, you know, in 26th of May this year. It should have come into ruling one year before, but it was in the middle of the COVID pandemic, et cetera, so it was postponed. Nevertheless, right. it has been on the table for a long while, and lots of people right. have been questioning against this quite aggressively, also when it came out. But that was, you know, the scandal period, and it's pretty hard to go against this very complex bureaucratic machine that we have in Brussels. It's not easy, definitely. A lot of big companies are suggesting to abandon or to change the approach towards the European market
0: for this reason. Let's talk about something brighter because that's obviously a complicated matter for, well, for anyone, whether you are in a university or you take it from the perspective of the startup. Uh, and then one can of course understand that from the perspective of the regulator you want to have some some amount of control but it is very difficult to to sure. figure out what the right approach is let's talk about some of the startups that are navigating this terrain somewhat successfully and are trying to innovate in, in regenerative medicine what are what are some that that you have been, Either looking at or that you think are doing interesting things. Because that's, you know, over, you know, a startup is a little bit more than a research article, right? Like you said, it, yeah, yeah, it takes a significant effort to move it from just a fancy story based on, you know, a fancy study. But here you have people who have taken science into the lab and then are trying to commercialize it what are some some concrete startups that you know of in the field of regenerative medicine that are actually making some headway i mean there are some of course
1: uh, we're not talking about hundreds we're talking about you know tens of these working in different fields in in our fields we can count about uh, 10 competitors worldwide which are in the field of bone regeneration you know some are more successful than the others some have, are following different uh, let me say philosophy with respect to us, which is, of course, always very interesting. But surely, you know, uh, the orthopedic and bone field is, 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 is a quite active field, actually. Then what is interesting from my perspective, and I always notice there are two companies that I always quote as, uh, you know, interesting to look at. One is what I called a potentially immense service company, which is uh, Cell Inc., It's actually a Swedish company, it's listed at Nasdaq. They uh, manufacture bioprinting machines. So they're providing you the tools. Their growth is more than exponential, you know, they're growing like this. I know both the founders pretty well from a scientific perspective and also from a personal perspective. They're growing a company really well because they're selling their machines everywhere. And the sense of their approach is that, well, we're not doing exactly regenerative medicine. We're giving you the tool for you to make regenerative medicine in your field. And I think this is a really interesting story to tell. Because if you ask them, how would you, for example, regenerate spinal cord, bones, tendons, skins, they have some ideas. But say, look, you are the guy who knows how to do it. I'm just providing you a really cool tool that you can use in your approach with your material, with your cells, with your strategy, tune it, program it, and manufacture the piece of bone you need to, the piece of organ you need to. And from a regenerative medicine perspective, this could be in the very long run uh, an important game changer. It's really, really early, early stage technology. It will take a decade at least to go into, into, into clinics and eventually into the market some more. But this is definitely a way to go. I remember I was at Singapore during my PhD course. And I'm talking about 2005, which makes 16 years ago not yesterday, 16 years ago. And at this biomaterial conference, I heard some people from from Japan, it was from the Kyoto Frontier um, uh, Medicine Institute, telling us and explaining us how they were able to reconstruct small bone defects in, in the skull of the patient by printing the missing part with this, let's say, 3D printing machine using resorbable polymers. They were making one or two patients, probably something like that, Very, very pioneering research, and at that time, all the people like this unbelievable. It's going to be the future tomorrow. Like you know, they took a CT scan of the you know of the patient when it comes to the ER, and meanwhile, the surgery does all the rest. They were printing these pieces in in polymers, between in resorbable plastics, but yet plastic technology. Actually, that technology is not yet on the market. 16 years for a long list of reasons really cool, really pioneering, really whatever, yet not into the market. Not with that speed, not with that solution. You know, for a long list of reasons, technical reason, regulatory reason, clinical reason. But when we saw the people from selling coming out, they are saying, like, look, this is the tool. It's a nice resource. You know what to cut it. You know, go. Go and cut a nice dress. Go and cut a wound. You do. But, you know, so this is the tool. And this is... One of the prime examples I make, the other one is Aliva Neuro, which is uh, actually some kind of um, spin-off in the area of the EPFL of Lausanne here in Switzerland. They work in the field of neurostimulation, so they're trying to tackle uh, problems connected with the generation of the very deep part of the brain. I'll make this long story easy. And they have been able to drive in such a complex and critical field, you know, because putting your hands and the lectures and stuff inside the brain of people is everything but not easy. And they also succeeded in certifying their product, and now they're starting their commercial operation with a relatively low amount of money and an extremely high company efficiency. But when you talk to them, their success story is tremendously interesting. Yet when you let them drink a couple of drinks or beers, they tell you the real story, and the real story is full of sleepless nights, Delays, unexpected expenditures, whatever, and also those top guys that play, you know, the very top league do experience every day the same problems. And so, from a structural uh, perspective, these two examples are, you know, let me say the kind of extremes that I can quote. And last example, which is outside my counting, is the GTX company. Uh, which is a really, really nice uh, bioelectronics company, you know, from Professor Cotren again, from the French part of Switzerland, so I'm talking about PFL guys again, and they have managed to develop this bioelectronic system that helps bridging out a spinal cord lesion. If you have to be very, you know, excited by their result, they make people walk again. Under very tiny, narrow, specific conditions of the patient, it is impressive. They are producing a massive amount of literature with you know spans from basic literature to really applied in clinics. On the other hand, if you look at it from a regenerative medicine perspective, they're not regenerating. They're just bridging the lesion. They're using electronics to gap a spinal cord lesion. And if you have to be pure, it's not regeneration. It's just, you know, bioelectronics, bioprosthesis.
0: Cool.
1: But it's not regenerating the defect. Nevertheless, they are in the field of regenerative medicine from a certain perspective, of course. And their tool could be of help for those who are trying to regenerate because it could be very synergic. So, you know, these three two and a half examples are uh, those I use also with my students to somehow tell the
0: stories. But there could be hundreds of these around. I was just curious. So neurostimulation is getting some some attention in the U.S. because of Neuralink with, uh, with Elon Musk. Have you been following that story?
1: A little bit, actually. A little bit. and uh, Well, I like Elon Musk a lot, just for the fact that he's a lateral thinker and he, he says what he thinks around. You may, you may at least suppose that some of his statements or, or his tweets are really well driven and he has some kind of snake driver behind his shoulder that helps him. With this kind of very precise communication he makes, but I like the approach in general. I think you know it's it, it, it's a cool guy, and he's been doing really cool things. And if you think what he's doing in his wide tech spectrum, you know, I think that SpaceX is cool. You're competing with Roscosmos and with NASA. You know, that's that's kind of high level world on on a intergalactic level. On the other hand, you know, neurostimulation is a really open topic in the medical part. In the medical field and i would say you know that if you tackle the brain the spinal cord also the peripheral nerve yet is not only complicated but it's pretty much unknown so it's where you want to prove if you have you know a really smart idea that's
0: that's a nice playground yeah the reason i thought it was specifically that you said uh you know sometimes the tool is more important and one of the things that Elon Musk really follows to the, to the T is that he spends an equal amount of time building the machine that builds the machine as he actually spends building the machine, right? So he has developed or is developing a robot for the surgery to insert the Neuralink. And it seems to me that that robot in and of itself as a surgical innovation may be perhaps equally important in the early years as, as the surgery itself, because it'll take forever Presumably, even with the FDA, to get that approved as a generalist surgery. But some of the things that that robot seems able to do—the kind of precision work that has to be baked in to place those uh, tiny, tiny sensors—yeah, I mean that surely must be applicable to to other things and could be generalized, right? So it's a machine that builds a machine.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and revolution are most oftenly. The- you know, brought by and supported by tools rather than simple ideas or invention itself. So the tooling is essential. I strongly believe it. And, you know, uh, in our field, we uh, take advantage of, you know, innovations and tools that are coming from different sectors. The closest to us has always been aerospace for, uh, you know, quality issue, extremely, you know, low risk approach and whatever. Safety, etc. It's fields where you know uh, someone said, if you remember Gene Grant, failure is not an option. So from that statement on, it was just an Apollo statement. It, it, it's something you know uh, we could really consider it. And and, and I think that uh, when you look at uh, when will that robot become you know daily available surgical tool, I think two decades or whatever. they will need specific registration per type of surgery per type of indication, whatever. it's going to be long. but surely it's going to help people from, from other uh, clinical fields and clinical indication definitely. And, and I cannot say where we are gonna
0: where that's gonna bring in the next 20 years. So let's take another spin. So this field has so many kind of uh, angles to it, but one is, of course, bone uh, generation, the other, you know, neuro, uh, kind of in the neuro field. But what about just plain old growth and cell growth? Because, you know, now you're bypassing all the device uh, uh, regulations. What are some of the more interesting uh, progress that you have observed in in the field of cell growth? And cell regeneration, but all spontaneous or or sort of stimulated by something, but somehow evading this European regulation of, of of actually being a device stimulating it. I mean, is that possible to to make that distinction? Are there innovations in cell growth stimulated by? You know, I, I mean, it could be stimulated at the very extreme by just taking pills, I guess, you know, so really, really avoiding the the um, uh, medical device regulation.
1: Well, I mean, this is another immense area. Uh, if I'm not wrong, it was in 2009 that there was uh, the European Rule 668, if I'm not wrong, talking 12 years ago, which somehow state that if you want to make uh, the, if you want to use stem cells to regenerate tissue, you must have a scaffold to keep the stem cells there where you want. So this was some kind of basic principle that came out from the regulatory perspective, again, more than 10 years ago. Now people try trying to say, look, which cells shall I use? Shall I use the autologous cells, which means the cells of the patient himself or herself, so that I don't have many ethical issues, I don't have biocompatibility issues by default because patient-on-patient, self-on-self. And how do I handle them? Do I handle them bedside? Do I handle them in a lab and then bring back? And in every different step or approach you take, regulatory perspective tremendously changes, which is really a nightmare. Then people say, how do I, do I stimulate them? If I handle them and I process them bedside, I have very little ability to process them and very little margins to stimulate them because they have very little time. If I bring them to the lab, I need a cell factory. And everything changes, even if they are autologous cells. So at this stage, you can find everything. You really can find in literature, a lab on a chip devices, you know, microfluidic systems to stimulate cells, electric system, any possible drug you can think, scaffolds, whatever. What it is interesting is that the research in this field is immense. So you can get a lot of inspiration out of it, if you count how many successful products are cell based on the market from a regenerative medicine perspective not talking oncology or immunology talking regenerative medicine only they're pretty much limited they are pretty much limited in number and also in a technology i can i know very little about this because from my humble perspective i do not want to use directly harvested and processed cell of the patient so for example in my bone regeneration experience i have We have been developing bone grafts that are colonized once they are inside the body by the cell of the patient. But everything happens inside. So I tune what's going to happen inside, but I let the body do its job. If I think of my neural research, I use autologous cells and I process them very quickly on the bedside and bring them back together with a scaffold again and let the body do its job again. My personal philosophy, and again, this is a real personal philosophy. Other people would say, no, you need to manipulate, you need to have a more or a higher level of simulation. These, I think, are tons of open questions, and there is no uh, correct or wrong answers, actually.
0: There's no correct or wrong answers, but uh, right or wrong answers, perhaps. But isn't there a continental uh, drift there? So the, the general U.S. approach being quite different, and certainly the general kind of Chinese approach, uh, you know, being very different from from the European approach. And I'm, yes, I, I am paraphrasing, and I'm sure it is yes. oversimplifying. But even even as it translates into the regulatory domain, the it whole is. stem cell debate, you know, d- does have a continental drift uh, type of uh, characteristic? The answer is yes. Full stop.
1: And I think it's right. it's over there. You know, that's a, a time, you know, a time's uh, first page. You know, stem cell hope for paralyzed patient. The second thing that Obama signed after having seated comfortably the first time on the Oval Office was the clearance to that study into patient. Yeah. Not exactly yesterday. Uh, the approach itself was pretty much, you know, you know, subject of criticism, approval, love, disagreement in total. They had, uh, it was Jérôme the company, actually running it. They had very poor results. But you don't have to look at the results, you know. That time was absolutely pioneering. Then you can say that he was trying to say, you know, we, we cannot go to the moon anymore. We've already been there. So the next time is, let's go with the stem cells, you know. long-term idea that the president of the united states has been you know putting on the table saying yeah what shall i do practically i'll start to sign and say go for the first one we'll try to use them so we're talking about if i'm not wrong like 15 years ago makes sense made sense yet still the u.s approach is way more open in considering uh, risk versus benefit in a less um, complex you know, uh, continental architecture, if you prefer to say so, or continental drift, or the way you want to use it more uh, softly or more politely, if you prefer. Uh, we know yet little about the Chinese. We know they're doing tons of things. They have a slightly different uh, ethical approach with respect to us from the Westerns, for example. And this is something really relevant. It's not a criticism, it's just reality. You know. Mm-hmm. So sometimes balancing the results of their research is quite complex for us, you know? Hmm. And, you know, it's, it's not easy, but definitely from a certain perspective, uh, the states are, you know, way more ahead. Definitely. Yeah.
0: But, but my last question to you is simply going to be longevity. So we haven't, we have danced around it and uh, regeneration can to some observers be very, very much about human longevity. To others it is much more about health span. What what is it to you? The second one, health span for sure.
1: And I'll always use um, you know let me say a comparison. Do you remember Dolly, the ship? The first mm-hmm. clone ship? Ooh, people saying we will have tons of copies of ourselves around without knowing it, etc. etc. How many copies of Tron do you have, by the way, if I may ask? I don't think that many. <laughs> okay, just a few, I hope as I do have some tens of them, probably you as well. No, besides jokes, I think that regenerative medicine is on health and quality of life. We are not slowing down the, mach- you know, the aging machine. We are, I think that we are trying, you know, that we go as long as possible in good conditions. There are some rules. People say that they're written in the telomeres of our cells, etc., that somehow establish, you know, what's going to be roughly you know, our lifespan. We cannot go from 20 to 200. But if you look back into history, what were the things that made uh, the human beings leave more? None of these were science-connected in, th- in the medical sense of it, you know? Uh, there were, uh, uh, you know, clean and health conditions in the houses, in refrigerators, access to food. And then at a certain stage, also the reduced number of wars... And then the overall economy, benefited, et cetera. And also also the clinical, the medicine came in at a certain stage for sure. Uh, typically, you know, cleaning hands and the clean environment during birth was essential for the survival of the mothers and of the kids. And if you think of these from a long-term perspective, then you will, you can easily understand that regenerative medicine is not about longevity itself. It's about
0: health and quality of life. Interesting. Beppe, it's been a multi-pronged discussion as as expected, because the field has, you know, we, we could have taken it in any direction. I'm, I'm quite happy with our, our discussion. I, I would just ask that we can stay in touch. It seems to me that, you know, we can jump into this discussion in, in many, many different ways. Uh, you know, when something big comes out and breaks. It, you know, it's interesting to assess whether this is even real, and and I'm sure that some some of that stuff will happen in this decade. We there will be breakthroughs, and there will be false starts again. Uh, Dolly, arguable, you know, how much that changed. But um, that thank you well. so much for yeah, that's that's cool. I mean, thank you so much for enlightening us, and uh, I hope we can uh, we can stay in touch, uh, covering you know the evolution of this exciting. Multi-pronged field. It will be my very pleasure, definitely. Whenever you
1: wish, or you have something that's popping out, you want to say, "Do you think?" It's not just an educated opinion; it's just an opinion, you know, by a humble, uh, you know, worker of this
0: huge field. (laughs) Well, humble is is good, I think, in this field. Otherwise, uh, I would be uh, afraid. So I'm 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 glad you said that. (laughs) Thank you you have just listened to episode 120 of the futurized podcast with host Trun arne hunheim futurist and author the topic was regenerative medicine in this conversation we talked about the true meaning of regenerative medicine my takeaway is that regenerative medicine is not just about longevity this quest to extend humanity towards eternity It is about something more mundane, but also fundamentally more important in my mind, which is to avoid unwanted suffering. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 88, The Future of Virtual Care, episode 67, On the Future of Longevity, or episode 19 on digital health in future pandemics. You may in fact want to explore any of our health episodes found at futurized.org slash category health. Futurized, conversations that matter.